welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is another in my series of collaborations with other hosts from Philosophy Podcasts, so I was very pleased to welcome onto the show Brendan from the Philosophy Guy podcast. The Philosophy Guy deals with philosophy in popular culture, so it's about the ideas of philosophy that are around us in culture and society, from film to TV shows to public figures to popular books. And he gives short overviews of the philosophical themes in any of those pop culture products. So in this conversation, we started with just a bit of a freeform informal discussion about the current state of public philosophy. And we said some very nice things about the current philosophy podcasting community. And we were a little bit more critical although I think in a, a reasonable way, of the public intellectuals in the intellectual dark web. From there, we went on to discuss some of his latest work, which is a philosophical analysis of the moral themes in Harry Potter. So quite a varied, eclectic combination of topics, but I had a lot of fun with this interview, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. As always, you can send your questions, comments, concerns, angry outbursts to me on Twitter, or send me an email. That's on the website. For now, though, let's get straight into today's show with Brendan from The Philosophy Guy. I am joined today by Brendan from The Philosophy Guy. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to, glad to do the show. No, I appreciate it. I'm trying to do more and more conversations with, I mean, would it be pretentious to call ourselves public philosophers? I mean, I don't think it would be because I applaud public philosophers. But uh, yeah, I, I'm. it's definitely an area that I wish would continue to grow. And that's why... Podcasts like ours, I think, have a place at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were chatting before we got on air. How about we do have quite a nice community, and like it seems like everyone knows everyone else a little bit, and it's very collaborative. Right. And like, I, I enjoy being a part of it if for no other reason than it seems like a bunch of nice people, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, everyone's super supportive because, like, it, I feel like people recognize that, you know, podcasting is it's kind of a grind. And, uh, you know, there's work that goes into it. And I think that's why it's, you know, like you do interviews and, and I feel like philosophers that are in the academic realm are very willing to come on shows as well. Cause you know, they, they also want to talk about this stuff and they want people, the general public to be interested in philosophy. And, and that's why podcasting is such like a good realm to do that. Oh, academics are the best. Like they will give you mm -hmm. their free labor for no cost um at oh, your yeah. convenience out of just a sheer desire to have more knowledge in the world you know academics oh, yeah mm -hmm. you can talk trash about academics in some respects but they are very generous with their time and expertise yeah it, like i have a i don't know how to how to word it but yeah I, I i do criticize some academics because it is still like kind of a closed off community to an extent 
but the fact that they're so willing to come on if you just reach out to them kind of kind of defeats that that feeling I had to an extent because you know they, they are willing to come on these podcasts and give up their valuable time to do stuff like this so the general public can hear about these different ideas and concepts that are you know so applicable to our life and we don't even a lot of people don't even realize it cool so um oh before we get going why don't you tell us about your podcast so you have like a philosophy degree but you're not you're like me right you you did a degree but you're not like a right. professional full-time philosopher um so right, why don't exactly. you tell us a bit about you how you got started with your podcast and like what what do you what do you cover on it yeah it's 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 something i should i guess talk about because i don't even think i've talked about it on my own podcast is like is yeah I, what's I, your I, origin story you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i'm fucking yeah. with you go ahead <laughs> but uh no you're good uh yeah kind of just the origin is i graduated from undergrad i studied uh political science and philosophy got a degree in that and then you know i was i'm still tossing this idea around i, I probably at least will try to get my master's in philosophy uh but yeah, it's kind of just one of those things that I realize the academic job market is not good right now. And I also just kind of thought about the fact that, to be honest, in like an academia, you have to be super successful for people to read your stuff and listen to your stuff and, and like creating new ideas. And I was like, you know, there's so many great ideas. There has to be a way to boil this down and make the public interested in it and I at least want to like help do that and also just kind of fill my own self-interested void of wanting to stay interested in philosophy so it's like if i'm going to go like do these you know research the stuff and think about this stuff anyway i might as well like write it down and, and, and talk about it so i was like okay i'll just i'll just start a podcast and see where it goes and yeah i, I used to do like the interview style i kind of went away from it for a year you know, about seven months ago, eight months ago now, I got it back up and I kind of had a new focus on doing it on like kind of like pop culture, society type philosophy concepts that people care about. And a lot of it's been like film and, and TV shows and kind of connecting those ideas to philosophical ideas and, and kind of use that as a connective bridge to keep people interested. Because, you know, I feel like a lot of times people go and they watch a film and a, like a deep film, like, you know, the, the easy one is like the matrix that everyone talks about. And, you know, even our generation or even generation before that, that film really like brought them into the world kind of. And I thought about that. I was like, okay, there's, there's a desire for this. And it's like a nice way to introduce these ideas and get people more interested in it. So I kind of rolled with that. And uh, lately I've also been kind of doing things like, you know, stoicism is very popular in that self-help area. So I like kind of talking about that stuff and applying that in a way too. And then also, like I, I guess I, I did like a, you know, I, I know we talked about before the show, I like to avoid like dividing topics, but um, my recent episode, I did it on Ben Shapiro's new book. I read his book and kind of just went through the, the ideas because it's, it's, I won't, I, don't, I won't say it's philosophy heavy because when I say philosophy heavy to me, it's like he did it well and like it's very dense philosophy. It, it's not, <laughs> um, but he, he attempts to do philosophy. So I, li I like to kind of go through and just kind of point out his flaws and his arguments. And, and that's like a new thing I'm quite excited about. I was going to say, don't don't tell me you're like a hardcore Ben Shapiro fan. Uh, uh, no, no, definitely not. I, I'll be like, like I said, I, I avoid. Uh, the political stuff to an extent, you know, I, I have no problem like giving my opinion. I mean, to be like, fair, I haven't read his book, so I'll, I'll hold fire on critiquing uh, that. Um, you can, you can, let's just say, 
what you know about Ben Shapiro, you can probably assume he translate those. I'm sure you've seen like YouTube clips or no, no, no. I follow I follow a lot of right wing figures, and I oh, yeah, um, I follow mm-hmm. him on Twitter. I've listened to a lot of his talks. Um, mm-hmm. He's not an idiot, and he's fun sometimes. I just fundamentally disagree with where he's coming from, and I think some of it is a little disingenuous, even. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's what I talked about in in my like analysis of it is honestly it's just kind of and like I said before I like you know Ben Shapiro he's a smart guy I will I will give him that no doubt but uh, he also I I do think to an extent he is disingenuous in the sense of how he reads history uh, it's it's very and and this is what a lot of I guess you could say public intellectuals do to an extent. Mm is they very much cherry pick information that they know their audience won't look further into so that they can kind of just like get away with these, these dis, this, this dishonesty to an extent, because like I said, they know like the, what their audience is and they're going to gear it towards that. And the sad part is, is like, and, and why I like kind of doing this is, you know, I've, I've been like evolving and changing my views and that's why I'm like, not all about putting my opinion out there. Cause it's like, I I'm changing. Like, me four years ago, the what I believed in, what I thought I believed in, I become much more skeptical to an extent and open to that. That's stuff. interesting. Then, would you say you've become more right wing or more left wing? Yeah, politically. Uh, so I, I would say is so. Yeah, I guess I'll be I'll be honest about this. Is like I was pretty libertarian, and, and I think to an extent I, I am still. But I also I'd like to think about like the political side of things and political philosophy. Like it's really cool to think about the theoretical side of things, mm-hmm. but then there's also this internal pragmatic side of things that you have to think about in that. Sure. You can have these ideals and what's realistic and, and, and is this really how the world works? Like, is it cool just to think about and like if the world worked that way or is it like a reality that's feasible? And that's where I came to this like realization that, you know, I, I, I would say like left center to an extent. Now I was never like really conservative. So like to say, but you know, libertarian leanings, but now I've become more like left center in the, in the realistic side of things. Like I'd have no problem voting for a Democrat, for example. Right. So that's, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and okay. So for your podcast, you do, um, philosophy of film, pop culture, whatever. And we were talking before we came on about finding like a niche, and that's your niche, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to find something that people aren't doing. And I'd actually be buggered to think about, because it's such a untapped mine, right, of looking at the philosophical themes in films and TV mm-hmm. and literature and, you know, whatever. I was actually thinking about the philosophy in video games recently, but we need to go into that. Um <laughs> We can cover, yeah, it's because, like, I look at even video games, even films, TV shows, the really good ones. Like, sure, there's those, like, really cheap ones. And, and I even do, like, a little series on bad philosophy. Like, I just did one on uh, the God, like, one of the first God's Not Dead movie. Just mm. because I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Ever. I, I've, I've self consciously avoided ever watching it because I know it would annoy me. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's brutal. And, it's it's like one of those movies that I also kind of like look at in the sense that, you know, there is those bad movies out there that think they're doing like this, this smart, like philosophy and making good arguments. And 
and they're just not like <laughs> you, can't, you can't honestly like go into that movie and watch that and be like wow this is really just an honest assessment of the arguments <laughs> because to kind of set it up for, for your audience if they haven't seen it you know god's not dead it, it, that first one because I, I did the first film because i think they have like three or four they kept they kept rolling with it and, and basically the idea is they're acting like christians and catholics are under attack from the oh, godless heathens exactly and the first one though is this this good christian <laughs> decides to take a philosophy 101 class and then there's a philosophy professor that's a hardcore atheist uh and he attempts to, or he, not he attempts to, but the professor basically is like, okay, let's let's not have to cover this God issue and just say God's, you know, God's dead. Kind of tr- claiming he's taking the Nietzsche quote, mm-hmm. even though if he mischaracterized the Nietzsche quote, but we won't get into that too much. But um, but yeah, so that, basically the whole film is that, and it's like just the the way they framed academia is just like wow. I, I like when I watched that movie, I was like, I need to do an episode on this because this is just sad. Like I can't have anyone coming in to that movie and being like, wow, that was, that was really good philosophy. And, and I'm very much of the mind that like us, like podcasters and, and, and addressing these kind of more hot button issues like that. Like, a, cause like, that's why I've been thinking about getting into more on my, on my show is addressing like religious arguments. Cause yeah, it is a dividing issue, but I'm also of the mind that, you know, you can make good arguments but it's also like if someone wants to know ways to address it in discourse, because I don't want discourse to be constantly like people just hating on each other. Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel like there's a way to, to find like this this happy medium of of having a good discussion and being able to address certain points of view in a non hostile way. So. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're more of a uniter than me. I'm a divider. Um, I. <laughs> I never set out to piss anyone off. I just seem to end up doing it, you know? I feel like you haven't really pissed. Maybe, is there is like a recent episode, maybe? I, I pissed off Jordan Peterson fans pretty badly. Uh, that's a, it's funny you, you point, picked it up uh, or did that because uh, I've been thinking about also doing... Because I have it in my show description. I haven't really done it. Like, I guess I kind of did it with Ben Shapiro's book in my, my recent episode. But I've been really, like, kind of contemplating doing one on, like, Jordan Peterson. Because the reason I, I've thought about it, I don't, I don't know your views on Jordan Peterson. I'm not, like, a Jordan Peterson fan. I think he's, you know, I'll be straight up. No, he's... I, he's Kind of overrated to my yeah. I I, I got in I got it. I I got in trouble for criticizing him. So like, mm. I mean, I won't say he's the devil, but I think there's a lot of stuff there that's problematic about women and just not honestly mm. just not properly thought through a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. The, go the ahead. episode I've thought about doing is is I, so getting into like the public philosophy thing, um, like we were kind of talking about one of the major problems I have with public philosophy, and this is where I kind of, you know, I'm all about not, not having academia on this, like this ivory tower. Yeah, absolutely but I'm, not. I'm, I'm also about bringing it down, but also just still being generous in how you explain ideas. And I feel like the problem with public philosophy is they get this audience, right? And 
they know what their audience is and what their fans are and what their fans believe in and what they care about, all that stuff. And all of a sudden, their their open-minded viewpoints that they start off with, maybe, they, they get conformed into like this ball that they're not willing to expand beyond. Mm. And I and I honestly, and that's like, that's my criticism with Jordan Peterson and like Sam Harris. It's like, sure, they have, I don't disagree with everything they have to say. Like, I think they have, do have some good stuff to say. And I'm one that can generally find something good. Someone says like, sure, not, not like a white supremacist. They're completely wrong. But like in general, like public philosophers, I feel like I can find something I agree with to an extent. Mm-hmm. But my problem is, is when they get to this conformed mindset and they're, they become disingenuous to ideas because they know they just know their base will just feed on it. And the example I've been like, really, that's really been bugging me and why I want to do an episode on it is Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson on postmodernism. And I feel like they just completely, cause I, I know that like Sam Harris not Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, he talks about like, I think it's like Stephen Hicks book on postmodernism, which it's been, basically just been disproven multiple times of how bad that book yes. gives gives to, to postmodernism. And I'm like, it bugs me because then they have such a big platform that they just influence the public to have this mindset about postmodernism. And then it's like all over the place. It's like, it's like I can't get away from it because now you have like, uh, like conservatives picking it up, picking up that same like the same talking points that Jordan Peterson talks about. And it's just like spreading. And I'm like, someone just needs to address this and like have a platform to address this because it's not what postmodernism is about. Yeah, I've I've actually also no no I've well, I mean I don't know how far we want to go on this, but like I've actually thought of doing a very similar thing. And the other phrase that really bugs me, you must have heard it, is cultural Marxism. Um, because this is straight. This is actually straightforwardly a conspiracy theory. In that, what yeah. they're referencing is the Frankfurt School, so like Adorno and Horkheimer yeah, and all of these point. people. Who, if you read them, are very, very these. These, by the way, for people who don't know, are sort of academics, Marxists, writing in what the sixties, seventies, that sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> they're very, very concerned with issues about like the dialectic between the objective and the subjective and um, yes. that, like the means of you know production and like the materialist conception of history in other words classically marxist concerns that and they're not uh, they're actually all quite sexist racist old white men actually when you get down to it on social issues <laughs> and the idea that these guys have um, sort of somehow poisoned all of contemporary culture um, by bringing Marxist ideas into analysis of race or gender or so on is just not true. And you can go on the Wikipedia page for the Frankfurt School and under cultural Marxism is conspiracy theory. Um, Mm -hmm. And as soon as someone says cultural Marxism, this is just the most colossal, gigantic straw man. And the only point I'd make with these people is they're also like, I get unfairly attacked, which sometimes they do, to be fair. I get so unfairly attacked, people straw man my views, they don't take what I'm saying in context. But then as soon as you start talking about cultural Marxism... Well, making the points about postmodernism, you're just engaging in a giant straw man of your own side, and you don't you don't get to have it both ways. You can either right. get people to be charitable in how they engage with you, and you'd mm-hmm. be charitable in return, or you're just in an all-out fist fight where any lie goes. 
And those are both two modes of discourse, but decide which one you're in. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And kind of this, I think, kind of relates to your point is I also have a problem with the way like the cultural Marxist term has just become, you know, it, <laughs> like I don't know if people like realize what it means at this point because it has turned into like such a conspiracy theory. But my problem is the way that people have connected it to like certain schools of thought and philosophy. Like for example, like existentialists get put under that umbrella. Um, people that are fans of Nietzsche get put under that umbrella, and then of course the postmodernists get put under that umbrella. And it's like like for example, like even the existentialist, you know, Satra, sure he was. You know, he called himself a Marxist, but even he was grappling with the fact that some of his views are contradictory towards Marxism, um, and, and then that reality, and because like that's where kind of Satra and Camus had kind of had some issues. Is Camus like, dude, like you're getting into this political side of things, and this is not what our viewpoint's about. And then same with postmodernism. That part of postmodernism is not you know, titling yourself under this, this group, this title, because that defeats the purpose. Because, you know, part of being a postmodernist is being willing to, to consider other viewpoints in, in a way, because if you give yourself a title, all of a sudden you close yourself off to viewpoints. And that's kind of, and like, that's an oversimplification, but I think it's a, it's a more generous <laughs> um, explanation than, than a lot of what these public philosophers like Sam Harris and such are, are giving it is, you know, it, it's just not what, what it's about with, when it connecting with Marxism. It's just contradictory. Well, yeah, what I find that bugs me is um, you're admonished. And I will say, I'm happy to say Sam Harris has been unfairly attacked for some things, right? I agree. Yeah, I, yeah, I, and I'm like... I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that, but like, at the same time, if you're going to demand that level of charity and nuance with regards to yourself... You have right. to give it to other people. Mm -hmm. And I don't I see that at all in that I've been fairly supportive, actually, of a number of like what you might call social justice concerns, be it about overcoming right. racism or sexism or what have you. And the people, I won't, don't get me wrong, there are people on the social justice side who behave like complete idiots. I agree. 100%. But like... yeah. Um, I, I do feel like those people are the exceptions and not the rule. And when people attack us, they do just define us all by those exceptions. And, exactly. And then Which is anti-postmodernism. Right. But, but then it's just a double standard of our discourse in that when I attack Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson, I have to be so careful of nuance, so careful to put everything in context, so careful of X, Y, Z. But when they mm. attack us, they're not careful at all in that way. They're not even remotely yeah. careful. Right. And it's infuriating. It really is. Because I know what you mean, because it's like, you know, I'm very much on the, the liberal side of the importance of free speech. Like, I agree with that concept and what Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris talk about. And, but yeah, that, that, but, and that's my other kind of issue is they, that's like all they, they talk about now. It's like, I get, you know, free, maybe some free speech is under attack on campus. Like maybe I'll give them the, those points, but it's like, can we, can we expand like beyond yeah. that? Like, I, like, that's why I stopped listening to him. I used to listen to him every once in a while because I do. Like, I, I don't disagree with everything they have to say. Like, I find some of the stuff interesting. But it's also, like, okay. <laughs> like, if I know – if I start knowing what you're going to say, like, every episode, right. I just forward. And, like, same with interviews. Like, Sam Harris, like, wants to bring it about the same thing. They bring the same people on. 
uh, and it, it gets frustrating. And you know, like, what's an example? I guess, like they they become buddy buddy with Dave Rubin, and I can't stand Dave Rubin interviews because of this. Is every conversation turns into the same exact thing? It's like, okay, you guys have this platform to introduce ideas, many ideas. They can be good. They can be bad. You can explain why they're good. You can explain why they're bad. But no, they, they pick one to talk about 100% of the time, basically. And it, it, that's what, that's some what spoiled, my biggest criticism is, too. Some spoiled brat on a college campus is making unreasonable demands. I'm yeah. sure this is true, but who the, is, is this even in our top 10 list of issues that are concerning society? You know? It, yeah, it's... It's like one of those things, and, and this is something I've been like kind of grappling with, is the things we worry about in America shows, like we can talk about you know white privilege and all that stuff, but the things that we care about in America today show as a country how much privilege we have. Oh, yeah. Go, 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 and, go, go. Yeah, and, and like, you know, like other countries, third world countries, you know, they're dealing with poverty and, and, and just – scraping up enough civil war then yeah yeah civil war dictatorships just you name it healthcare issues whatever across the board they're basically worse off than we are and here we are like worried about you know like and this goes both ways like it you know the right does it with freaking out about this free speech stuff on campus the left does it like sure like i'm all you know i'm i'm for you know calling people whatever pronoun they want to be called like i don't give a shit but it's also like the fact that we can care about that and we can care about this other side, the left and the right, like that shows our privilege. Like we can talk about privilege, but man, that is that is evidence of, of itself that that's what we get to care about and worry about. I, I agree. I will say I think the issues the left brings up, I mean, I think are more important, right? Like even the pronoun thing. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Like, you know, those those issues are important and it's great that we get to we get to care about those issues like i'm not criticizing that like it's good we get to talk about those mm. things but still i just wish that people would sometimes you know when they're getting like heated is kind of what i'm trying to say yeah. when they're getting really heated about it it's like let's take a step back and realize that we're able to have this dialogue and that says something but yeah go ahead sorry no no no, no, no that's fine um i will say like i think the the um actually the people who get, what do the British say, their panties in a twist um, <laughs> about stuff tend to be the right. Like, yeah. And when the left gets worked up about stuff, it's it, it, don't get me wrong, the left has its hissy fits too, but it's about stuff like racism and sexism and transphobia, which is, like, important. Um, the right gets in a twist because, like, there was a protest about Ben Shapiro and it's like you know maybe that protest was a waste of time I'm not sure I would have showed up to it but right that's their free speech yeah yeah they get that free speech the same as Ben Shapiro does and you think that they protested like that is the most existential crisis in America and it just isn't I'm sorry this yeah. is not like on the list of like I say it's not on my top 10 list of things I worry about yeah. And, and yeah, it's something I've, you know, I would say I kind of evolved on it. And maybe this is like part of the motivation for starting my podcast is that, you know, like I do care about these issues, but I also like realize that, you know, even touching some of these issues, if you don't, you know, talk about, I think we're talking about it from a very meta standpoint, hmm. which is 
less dividing. But like when people really try to get down into it, it just turns into such this like this dividing issue that the minute someone hears like, oh, let's say they hear you're on the left or they hear you're on the right, they just shut down and they just grapple onto that. And it just makes for like just these ridiculous conversations. And yeah, I, I agree with you. The right is what they're, they freak out about and what they care about is, is ridiculous. And, you know, and it's also, I mean, both sides are contradictory. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, the right is, it's like you guys are getting in just as much of hissy fits, if not more than what the left is doing. And, and just wish that both sides would kind of realize that. And maybe you could actually start, you know, talking a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, I do all the time on my show. Like, I'm known, well, to the extent that I am known, as as famous and influential as I am. No, <laughs> um, but like, I'm known as sort of a hard left person, and I have conservatives on my show. I had Glenn Lowry on my show. I've had other people on my show, and I'm always perfectly lovely to them, yeah. and it's fine. Like, you can do oh, that, yeah. you know. Um, unfortunately, it's not the norm, but yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I don't call myself like fully, like, I don't know, I don't know if I would. Like I said, I, I try not to use titles too much. But yeah, like the left center idea is that, you know, I'm not like a socialist in the sense on, on capitalism. I do think capitalism has its benefits. And I know that's become like a toxic word. But like, I'm you know, to an extent, it does provide some good. But, you know, I'm also completely willing to talk about its possible limitations. and And that's why I wish, you know, like people like you that are able to, to talk about people with opposing viewpoints and have civil discussions and such. And I feel like I'm talking like an IDW right now. <laughs> <laughs> the the but, problem uh, with yeah, the IDW right. civil discussions thing isn't that that's not a valuable goal. It's that it's hypocritical. I've never seen them have a civil discussion with someone who's hard left on social justice. That's that's a very fair point. And the problem – so another – I'll give another criticism, I guess, to the IDW – is kind of what I talked about earlier is they bring the same people on their shows. They talk about the same stuff. And, you know, I've heard about this. I've heard, for example, like Joe Rogan talk about it. That's why I still respect Joe Rogan because he does bring a lot of people on. He does do the similar thing of bringing the same people on. But he's kind of, he's pretty open about stuff in the sense that he like listened to, I think it was like Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson about someone not to bring on. And like to me that that put off flags for me. I'm like, well, you know, why not bring them on? Right. Like, why not bring someone on from more hard left or whatever? And uh, you know, you could you just have to be willing to have those if they're going to be the conversation people. It's it's one thing to admit your bias, like you know, like like Fox News, like obviously they're biased, right? right. But then if you're going to be one like a like a Dave Rubin, I think Dave Rubin does this way worse. Is is that he comes off as like. I'm just wanting to have conversations with anyone and everyone, right? But he doesn't. No, and I I haven't tried myself, but um, I've heard from a lot of people on the left that he just won't have someone on the left on. And actually, um, I won't name them publicly, I'll tell you off air, but um, I've had a number of people in the IDW agree to do my show and then suddenly cancel and ghost me. And they won't even get back Damn. to my emails or anything. And Weird. isn't that just interesting, right? In that, what did I do? You know, yeah. probably that I pissed off Jordan Peterson fans because I had a guest on who called him a misogynist, right? Right. And I got for a time, right? Wait, I sit- you get, are you, were you getting criticized for the guest calling him that or like something you said? No, no, the guest. 
They're so they're mad at you for bringing a guest on that criticized Jordan Peterson. Yes. Oh come on. Well, I had. Shit, um, no, do you know? Um, no, I'm going to get criticized. <laughs> do you know? Um, do you know? You, you must know existential comics. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had um, the author of that, uh, Corey Moloron, and he's oh, like, yeah. he's like an actual. Not like far, he's like an actual communist, communist, right? Yeah, yeah. I've listened to some of his interviews because I was always curious because I followed him on Twitter and I was like, I want to know like what this guy's about, uh, you know, when he had some like dialogue going. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, I had Corey Mahler on and he said something to the effect of he said Christopher Hitchens was an interesting and informed man who happens to be a misogynist. Yeah. <laughs> Jordan Peterson is a misogynist who is a misogynist and, like, isn't an interesting and informed man. And I thought that was kind of clever. He was like, Christopher Hitchens had an intellectual project and he happened to be a misogynist. Jordan Peterson is a misogynist yeah. who doesn't have an intellectual project. Right. And, um, I, I don't know, what did I say? I, I like, didn't pretend I liked JP because I don't. Um, but anyway, I did that interview and I put it out there. And for whatever reason, JP fans just got a hold of it. And, like, every time I opened my phone, I had, like, another fucking hundred messages about, like, how I had taken the good man's name in vain and uh, I had, like, besmirched his good... It's just, like, this, this pearl-clutching crap, you know? Oh, like, man. like, yeah. Like, for, for you, know, you, you know, for a misogynistic um, way of expressing this, man the fuck up, dude, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, like and, if, and they have it, to realize existential comics is, you know, his his thing on Twitter, to an extent, is kind of being a troll. Right, like he likes to piss off the right, and they're just like kind of like proving his point, honestly. But yeah, no, I got a fuckload of that shit, and yeah, then... that, that isn't my problem. Yeah, because it's like that's what you know. To an extent, the left does the same thing. But it's like the right criticizes the left for doing it, but the right does it too. The right's like worse. Does it. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. And the thing is, right, so I had a guest on who says Jordan Peterson is a misogynist, right? Now, you can disagree with that statement, sure. But you you go hysterical about, like, how unfair this is, how we're besmirching them, whatever... Where is that concern for when Jordan Peterson calls us Maoists? Who says yeah. that we long for the genocide of millions? What, can you, if you're writing me, can you please also write him to ask for a little more nuance? And yeah. it's just this crazy double standard that we've all accepted is okay, and I don't accept it. Like, there's nothing I've said about Jordan Peterson that's as tenth as bad as what he said about us. There isn't. Right, right, yeah. And it's like, you shouldn't be criticized for what a guest says about it. Like, that's that's what I mean. It's like, it should be okay to have guests with op opposing viewpoints on your show. And it's like, not. conversation can be fun. But yeah, for some reason, they, they want... I don't know why, because like people talk about... Especially, like, we've been talking about on the right, they want discussions, but... Man, they just want to hear discussions that just kind of confirm their their pre-existing bias. There you go. That's, exa sad. that's uh, exactly what it is. There you go. And that's why I've been like, like I have kind of avoided, because uh, like I got to the point where you know I don't do interviews on my show just because I kind of like I we talked about I don't know if we talked about on air, but anyway, just the organizational side of things, but. Yeah, it's just like honestly, I didn't want to deal with 
with that stuff. But I like doing interviews. Like they're, you know, it's fine. It's a way to get my show out there and and stuff like that. But I also felt like this is kind of like the first time I started doing interviews since, you know, I kind of revamped my show. I just started like reaching out to people and I was like, all right, I think, you know, I like, I'll like mention the show and mention your show for a few episodes. I feel like I got to the point where, okay, it's, I feel like it's worthwhile to like not have to do an exchange where I can like mention your show for a few episodes and make it worth your while and stuff like that. But yeah, and that's, that's the sad thing. And that's kind of what steered me away. Part of the reason I was steered away from interviews is I just don't want to deal with it. You know, there's a weird like political economy of interviews and like what ideological mm-hmm. spectra you, I mean, apart from like over bigots, I'll talk with anybody. And if you yeah. think I'm wrong, you can tell me. And if I think you're wrong, I'm going to tell you. And like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, I'll end. I mean, we've bitched on about this enough, but like, <laughs> I just do feel like there's a hypocrisy there that like is galling that the free speech mm-hmm. warriors just cannot talk. It's a hustle is what it is. They know that there's money to be made in having oh. big online yeah. platforms where they trash social justice concerns to the approval of, let's be honest, young white men. Mm-hmm. Um, and they never put themselves in a position where they'll be with someone who will contradict them. And it's it's kind of nauseating and cowardly, honestly. And if anyone's listening to this who, you know, is saying, well, Toby, do you talk to people of different points of view? I'll happily say, um, yes, I do. I have a track history of it. And if there's some IDW person who's listening to this who wants to come on, invite yourself on. I'll happily talk with you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... and- and I will say this though, like the podcasting world, and that's what I kind of like about it. Like coming on shows like this and and listening to interviews, I definitely think it's like less toxic than you know some of like the YouTube world. The YouTube yeah. world is it's, it's very it's very toxic, and uh, in the conversations they have and and people that try to do something like podcasting world does, but it comes. So I guess I, to give credit where it's due. There is some better dialogue going on, I think, in pod, the podcasting world, but we'll we'll see where the what the future holds. Yeah, I mean, philosophy podcasting is um, very collaborative. I found. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. like, totally. And if you have a show, you can go on anyone else's show. Like that's yeah. like because when I was doing interviews, I had no problem. Like that wasn't why I stopped doing it. Because like I had interviews easily lined up interviews with philosophers and, you know, people on Twitter it's just cause like podcasting. Yeah. I feel like they just kind of, it's, it's, it's almost like more casual. Like mm. I'll, I'll even like compare it to YouTube again, where like YouTube, a lot of times, you know, your face is out there and there's a little bit more work involved and all that. But like podcasting people are like, yeah, let's just go and have a conversation. Right. Mm. So, but cool. So we prattled on for half an hour about the state of public <laughs> philosophy um, do you want to do a bit on what we are actually meant to talk about? <laughs> yeah, let's let's get into it. Okay, so um, I actually think this is really important and really interesting in that, um, you know, when we're talking about philosophy and we're talking about why people believe what they believe, we put almost no thought into the stories that they're told as they grow up. You know, what mm-hmm. films, movies, books do they do they engage with? Um, which is actually how people probably form their moral worldviews, right? Yeah, I I would agree with that fully, and that's and that's you know, 
it's motivation for why my my podcast is geared the way it is is because of that idea i feel like people you know sometimes i think it's consciously they're doing it but sometimes i think it's just these ideas stick in this this subjective part of your mind to get a little philosophical in, in that it sticks back there and it kind of formulates the views you have. And, and when you hear a viewpoint, how you interpret that and react to it. And, you know, it's not just film, like we're, you know, we're going to talk about Harry Potter and whatnot, but it's also like, and that's why I want to get into like the public figure side of things is, you know, those people do that too. And, and what you learn in school and just everything around you, all this information around you, it relates to these ideas. And it's, and that's why I think it's fun to kind of connect those dots to those those various viewpoints and ideas that are presented to us through a film such as or a series such as Harry Potter. Yeah, and I think it's hugely important because one of the things I've been talking about a lot on my podcast is we all have these innate uh, subconscious uh, you know, moral systems operating on us, which we're very unaware of, but we have to have them because we have to make moral choices, right? Mm-hmm. And... They come from somewhere. So the example I always give is if you walk into a job interview and they say, all the women can leave now, we're only going to consider men for this job, you immediately go, that's not fair, or that's not right, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to analyze it. You just know. Yeah, your intuitive response, yeah. But that's not natural either, because most people through all of human history would have considered that just fine, right? Mm-hmm. But something about our culture and our society, and like I say, the stories we've been told as we grow up, has conditioned you to think that way. And so I think it's hugely important to analyze the stories that we tell and think about what are the moral and political philosophical claims that are being made here. And you actually don't see much of it at all. It's considered a bit... Um, gauche almost to do uh, philosophical analysis of children's stories or films or whatever, which is what you do. Um, but it strikes me as hugely consequential and important. Yeah. And, and obviously I would, I would stick up for that point too. And, and you know, uh, there is some that are just, you know, kind of, I would say bad philosophy, but yeah, then there's some that, that like in the case of Harry Potter, like JK Rowling, I don't know if she, she was consciously doing it even like, and that's what happens with really good stories too. in movies is, is these authors, they create something and then they might've had their own interpretation going in and what they were trying to do. But then other people start, it becomes like this, this uh, arena on the public square, I guess you could say, where people are able to kind of find their own meaning in it and derive their own meaning. And that's why I find it so interesting is, you know, I definitely think JK Rowling was trying to do it. Like the the idea of like love and death, I think she was intentional on, but some of like the political stuff in there and the societal things that Harry Potter kind of brings forward, like maybe she didn't mean to do that, but it kind of just happened and it opens this, this place for people to have a discussion. And the reason I like it is, is, when it's something like this, where you can talk about the real world and, let's say, political issues that we want mm-hmm. to discuss, and it immediately becomes like, let's say, here in America, it's left versus right. But then, like in a movie, I feel like people become all of a sudden more civil. Like they're willing to have a conversation about the interpretation they had and like why it's right or why it's wrong or why that viewpoint's a good viewpoint or what it's trying to say. And all of a sudden, it becomes like this actual good dialogue. 
And, and that's, that's part of my motivation behind it is, is that idea that I very much align with. So you read into this, and I think correctly, like a strong duality between love and death. Um, I, I mean, I guess we can say at the beginning of the episode, spoilers alert, but oh, um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like anyone is going to have seen these by now. Um, but do you right. want to talk us through um, what what do you think is the central moral message? Because it, it is interesting, the Harry Potter books, mm. in that they do have a central moral message to them, and one that's quite distinctive. How do you how do you read that? Yeah, so I would like I, I put I took some notes on some, and and I probably will do like an episode on this some other time. But anyway, uh, it has a political side of things, but yeah, the moral side of things, it's very much I think commentary on this idea of death and like the way we as humans look at death and how, and it's making like an argument to like do a slight aside quick. The reason I like films is it's almost like you get this full picture. Like it has a start and end point in the sense that it's, you know, it's starting and introducing ideas and ending with something, a conclusion of what you're supposed to take from it. And it, that means something. And that's why I think this film or the series does the Harry Potter series does is, he takes this idea, and in the case you have, let's say, like you have Voldemort and Harry Potter, both like very similar, and I, and I can tell J.K. Rowling was trying to put this idea forward. Very similar, you know, they lose their parents, they find, you know, they love Hogwarts, they love the Wizarding World. They kind of have this very like similar background, you could say, but they have very different outcomes or belief systems moral systems, I guess you could say. And I think it's commentary on which one you should pick. And Voldemort becomes obsessed with immortality and living forever. And that's what the series is about, is basically like stopping him from taking over the the world because he's basically this immortal being that wants to kill all the non-magical people, basically. Um, Where Harry has a different upbringing. He embraces friendship, for example. And, And I think that it connects with kind of Aristotle's view of friendship and that, and I have, I put a little, like a little quote in order to love one must accept who one is. And to me, I take this as Aristotle's idea of, of accepting death. And in order to understand death, you in a way have to accept love and the, like the life we have to live. And the idea is Harry Potter embraced that. He embraced his mortality and embraced this idea of death where Voldemort spent his whole life denying it. Because he denied it and doesn't want to embrace it, he wasn't able to share in the experience of mortality that brings that love out in people and that friendship out in people. And that's and I found that very interesting and and uh, interesting way to introduce that kind of moral concept of like the importance of love, the importance of friendship, and the importance of, you know, Maybe this does end, and there isn't an afterlife even, but yeah, absolutely. What do you make it's It is interesting, right, of the centrality of death to this series, and there's um the 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 parable at the end of the the elder wand and the cloak and whatever the deathly hallows um mm-hmm. that centers death. And it's in the epigraphs to the final novel, they're all about death. Um, yeah. 
it's something interesting because even in moral philosophy we actually don't talk about death but she seems to want to tie that to a number of the central how might we say this more standard concerns of moral philosophy about the value of friendship and um being inducted into a community with others um, she mm-hmm. wants to say, like, understanding death in a certain way is central to all of that. Do, do we agree with this? What do you make of that? Yeah, so I, I actually I find myself agreeing with it in the sense that a way to connect with people, and this is where it comes into, I think it's it's like we, like we read that into the film, and I think it's a very, like, kind of, I would say, obvious reading. But in your everyday life, it's not like I'm thinking – about how, oh, we're, we're both going to die, you know, let's be friends Why it lasts. It's almost like one of those things that I think maybe it's like a priori or something where we just kind of have this basic understanding like, oh, we're, we're going to die and let's make the most of this life Why it's here. And then you do that. And then all of a sudden that is what brings forward this. Okay. I'm going to go out and have experiences. I'm going to go out and make friends. I'm going to go out and connect with people, talk with people. And I think I think it does say a lot in, in that understanding because, like, it's someone that spends their whole life thinking they're not going to die, I think it's an interesting thing to consider of how how does your worldview change, and and the reason I, I find this this concept also interesting is as like we have you could like even take this into I don't know if you want to go this route but technological advances let's say let's say if humans start becoming to to live a lot longer. And, 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 you know, let's say we, we start being able to live like 300 years. How will our viewpoint of relationships and friendship and love, how will that change? Because the concept of death changes. That concept of death is almost like this, this foundational understanding that leads us to act in a particular way. So how would it change, though? I mean, so there's another argument, which is that you know, so J.K. Rowling is sort of telling us death binds us. There's mm-hmm. a futurist point of view which says death is a technological problem that we will solve. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's like since I've done this episode, this is something I've been like kind of looking into and researching. Is you know, I would say philosophy. You know, since since you know Greek philosophy, you can even talk about Eastern philosophy. This philosophy has been very much obsessed with this idea of death. And you could even say philosophy might have its basic origins came from a discussion of death. And, you know, the discussion of death leads into, okay, we have death as this inevitable thing. What does that, what does that do for the meaning of life? And answering that big question that philosophy likes to discuss. And all of a sudden what happens to discussion and and ethics and our viewpoints when, yeah, when, it becomes like I, I think. Uh, what's his, what's the author's name? Uh, Yuval Hari. This this concept of yeah, like being mortal is just this this flaw that we currently not not. I wouldn't say flaw. Flaw is not the accurate word to use. It's almost like this thing that we just need this technical thing we need to fix, hmm. and it will be interesting because I do think. That I don't know when it could be. Let's say it's it could be fifty years from now. Probably not. Could be a hundred years from now. It could be five hundred thousand years. But the thing that's changed, and I think recently, is we see that reality coming as a possibility, and like we see it as realistic now. 
and not not immortal in the sense that you know you can still get hit by a car and, and die, right? But in more immortal in the sense you're you're almost immortal in that you can be constantly repaired <laughs> in a way. So is JK and, right or wrong then? Um would would we would we lose something in that world? Would we lose a certain connectedness? Yeah, that's a good that's a very good question because that's why like that's why philosophy and whatnot are I think almost becoming more interesting now because this those those were the questions that people were dealing with prior to us. Hmm. But now that this new future, this future mindset is becoming more of this realistic reality in that okay, maybe JK Rowling isn't exactly right because all of a sudden that if death isn't this foundation anymore. We're not as worried about it. What does that do for love and relationships and friendships? How will those change? Do they, do they matter as much having like good friendships? Will people's mindsets change about that? It's actually a scary world to, to think about to an extent you could, I think some people would see it as a utopia and some would see it as very much a dystopia. And then, yeah, but I, it, I don't know the answer. <laughs> it's interesting though, in that, you know, you, you frame it as a very futuristic thing, but actually a number of the bits that she's drawing on with death um, are quotes from Corinthians and Ephesians um, in the mm. New Testament, which are yeah. explicit religious denials of death. So there's a bit in Harry Potter, the, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Um, mm. That's Corinthians, that's from Paul, where he says... If the dead will not rise, your faith is in vain. So, like, there's a very strong... It's not just a futuristic thing, it's a historical religious thing of an overt denial of death um, in terms of, you know, the, the in, in the flash of an eye, the twinkling of the, the... A trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. That is a huge part of our religious history. And... It's interesting a philosophy that grounds itself in an acceptance of death, because it seems to be both rejecting the future and the past. Yeah. Yeah, and the 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 idea also I, I you made me think of this too, connecting to the idea of death being this foundational thing, in that sure you can you talk about how like re, those areas of religion don't really deny it, but then you also have like the Greeks um, you know, the pagan, pagan gods, for example, the men, you know, they very much, you, you talk about in the Odyssey where they even put forward this idea of death and how I, I, death is almost like this, this good thing. Mm. Like you want to have death because they almost, the gods then that were immortal gods, they, they looked at the mortals and almost envied them because they lived with this, this edge to them, this fear of death always. And, you know, kind of, bringing this back to the, the future focus side of things. And maybe, maybe it, it won't change as much as we think it does And that death would still be a problem. You know, it's still like, it's not like we're becoming immortal that we're undefeatable. And maybe that would come like a long, long time from now. I don't know. But like, at least in the near future, when maybe we are able to keep kind of repairing ourselves, I guess you could say, and living longer, death almost becomes scarier because you have this, this ability to have life experiences, experience love, experience many relationships, do like every hobby you can think of. All of a sudden, your your utility of life expands almost endless. 
but then death just defeats that endless potential of of pleasure and experiences and all of those friendships and whatnot to have and death becomes almost more detrimental because now you know we we kind of come into this world we learn that you know you don't you don't zero to 80 Hmm. average lifespan whatever it is and we kind of just have to grapple with that our whole life but all of a sudden when that that future of oh dying at 80 all of a sudden is really young that kind of i feel like it changes perspective and we'll see and and harry potter uh touches on it too where there's some some uh I forget the name of the character is in the later movies, at least in later books, but uh, some people live to be a couple hundred years old. So they, they grapple. With I, that I, too. I believe the wizarding white lifespan is longer than the muggle one. Yeah. yeah um, definitely. But so as a final question, it is interesting to contrast the Harry Potter books with the books that other generations were raised on. Um, for instance, I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis's Narnia or The Lord of the Rings or something like that, which mm-hmm. are overtly Christian books and yeah. have like almost an, ex- an an opposite moral vision of the world to them, right? Yeah. To what extent do you find it... Could, do you think we can interpret Harry Potter almost as a self-conscious rejection of the childhood stories of previous generations? Yeah, to an, to an extent, because one thing about Harry Potter, and let's compare it to, let's say, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings has this very obvious good versus evil. So it kind of sticks to that. Like, you know who the good guys are, you know who the bad guys are. And something that's even coming after Harry Potter is this idea of playing with that and, like, not making this obvious good versus evil. But touching on your question, yeah, Lord of the Rings is very much like, you know, live an honorable life and, you know, live live on, right? Kind of these very Christian overtones of the afterlife. Where Harry Potter, it's very much... You know, Harry almost accepting that there isn't an afterlife. Hmm. Like, and and I think it's very representative of the way our generation is changing in that it does change that theme in that Harry is still like your kind of traditional hero. He's hmm. brave, courageous. He loves others. He makes friends. Very traditional. You, you have that in, in Lord of the Rings with, uh, what's his name? Aragon? I think it's Aragon. Aragorn, yeah. Aragorn. Also, also Salmon. For, One yeah. of the main characters. Yeah. yeah, I think it's Aragorn. Yeah, yeah. It, multiple characters show this traditional hero character style, and Harry very much fits with that. But Harry, like we've been talking about, is, yeah, he, he almost like embraces it. When he has to, to defeat Voldemort, he has to die. And he's like accepting that to save my friends, to to save my friends and know that they're going to live on and have experiences and experience pleasure and make friendships and love and blah, blah, blah. He's willing to sacrifice that and die and accept his mortality. And I think it's very representative. Maybe JK Rowling just, you know, she purposely did it and she hit on a very good transitional period, or maybe she saw it coming, which is very applaud to her um but uh yeah i think it's something our generation has kind of changed that acceptance and understanding because you know it's i don't think it's no it's not a secret that millennials are going away from traditional religious ideas do you think that's making us more or less moral um 
That's a, ooh, that's a good question. Um, I would say more moral because I, I, I very much accept the idea that, you know, you even look at the history of philosophy and the history and the evolution of humankind. And I do like this gets into, you know, the question of what is being moral, which we don't have to hit on today. But I do see this progression and understanding of, you know, how you should spend your life. And something that I think people are, are at this point recognizing that question and recognizing like, okay, if this is the only life we have to live, we have to think about how we should act in it. And almost like the fact that, that this is it, it we want to make it more enjoyable for people. And, and to me, this kind of derives that, okay, maybe people are acting more moral. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see where that evolutionary process will take us. But yeah. So, so you you agree with JK? The sent the death is central to a moral life. I would, yeah. Currently, I think I would agree that the having the under yeah the understanding of death. Well, I, I don't even know if it's necessarily like agreeing with that's what makes us moral, um, or like what drives us to act and what we perceive to be moral. Um, it's more so that we have this understanding that it's a central foundation in how we develop our viewpoints, whether it be moral viewpoints, political viewpoints across the board and how we act in that sense. If that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if I exactly agree that death is necessary to make us moral. Uh, I don't think that would be the case necessarily because kind of like what we were talking about with that future focus idea, I almost think that people would become more careful and possibly with that more moral. Um, but yeah, I mean, another episode to do maybe someday is uh, the discussion of morality is also an interesting one because, you know, the concept of morality is something that's constantly changing. Like, what is a good thing to do? And we can say we see progress, but like, how do we know it's moral progress? Is that just that's just us as humans wanting it to be progress? Um, and that's you know. And and to to one more quick side note is another idea that death brings about is you know if people when we start having these conversations about the future focus side of things on death. And like how we, if, if we should play with that idea of being able to live longer, you know, how will that change in that people will have that discussion of, well, if you take away death, you know, that's like, that's like a dangerous thing to go down. And what will that do? I think they'll say, you know, what will that do for morality? So yeah, those conversations might definitely be coming. I mean, undoubtedly. Okay. Um, we ran a little over there, but why don't you tell everyone um, if they're interested in the philosophy of film and learning about that, where they can follow you? Yeah, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. I think it's like at Brendan Weber underscore. I can like send you links too. I don't know if you want to put in the show notes. Yeah, but, I can uh, do that. Yeah, and then if you just search the philosophy guy, um, my website is thephilosophyguy.fireside.fm. I have my my host host name on there, um, but yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Contact me through my website. You can email me and, and yell at me about any anything I put out today or agree with me. Whatever, I'm always open to to emails as well. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week, I'll be returning to the topic of Brexit, and I'll be looking specifically at the role of ideology in that whole mess. My guest will be Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Philosophy at Cambridge University, who'll be familiar to many of you as a frequent panellist on the Talking Politics podcast. I think Helen is an amazing public commentator on this, and I was very happy to get her on the show. As always, if you want to support this, then you can do so by sharing episodes, leaving reviews, or by sponsoring us on Patreon. Links to our Patreon, as well as all of our social media and ways to follow, are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Apart from that, thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week.